The calendar has turned to July, which can only mean one thing. We are that much closer to deer season. But before we can even talk about deer season, my guest this week is Josh Crumpton. He's the owner of Spoke Hollow Outfitters down in Wembley, Texas. The cool thing about Josh is he taught himself how to fly fish at the age of 12. We go on to talk about everything but fly fishing. But that's how we roll on the Bryantland Show, which starts as soon as they hit my music. Stone Mountain, Georgia. This is the Bryant Land Show, hosted by Proud Gamecock and South Carolinian AB3. So, about 40 minutes outside of Austin, Texas, is a town called Wimberley. And in that town is Spoke Hollow Outfitters. That is owned, ran, and managed by Josh Crumpton. Josh, thank you for taking the time to come here and visit with me on the Bryantland Show. Thank you for having me. I'm I'm excited to be here. Man, how, how's things going down there in uh, Texas? I know we we talked a little bit before, and. You you mentioned one of the things that pretty much strikes fear into the heart of any outdoorsman, and that is the word rattlesnake. <laughs> yeah, we are uh, we're getting into rattlesnake season down here in Texas. Uh, it's hot, and when it's hot, <laughs> the snakes start moving. And um, yeah, I had to dispatch a snake just last night. My wife. Uh, I was down by the dog kennels. I got a, and I had a dog bit by a snake the night before that. Oh man! So, yeah, you know, normally during this time of the year, we are in Idaho and we kind of avoid the snake season time of the year. But this year, we're not we're not heading up north. We're we're gonna battle the heat and battle the rattlesnakes. So, is the trip the is the trip to Idaho kind of like the just to get out of Texas while it's hot as hell, kind of recharge your batteries, that kind of deal. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of one of those things. So my my wife's um, dad is from a little town up in northern Idaho, and uh, they still have the family house up there that his grandparents built like in 1906. And um, wow. yeah, yeah, it's cool. So it, it's fun to get the kids and everybody up there, and we we kind of go and recharge and. And go fly fishing on all the rivers up there and just kind of spend some time in the mountains to escape this heat. And the dogs usually go into into a training program during that time, um, Colorado or somewhere where it's a little bit cooler or easier because down here it's, it's tough to, to train them because of snakes. And because our viable opportunity for training dogs in Texas is just a narrow window in the morning very, very early. Right. Um, so, yeah. So we're missing out on that this year. Changed plans a little bit because of COVID and a little bit because my, my wife, we're expecting our fifth child. Ooh, so fifth <laughs> child. Congratulations. First of all, congratulations. But man, Thanks. child number five. How old are you, if you don't mind me asking? <laughs> well, I'm 45, but sometimes I feel 105. <laughs> and I don't know if you're congratulating for me for having my fifth child or for surviving through the first four. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it's a it's a little of both, but man, to to do a newborn at 45 man that that is courageous I, my uh <laughs> my parents were uh in their 40s i think right at 40 uh when they had me so uh, it, clearly it can be done and be done successfully but man my hat's off to you <laughs> thanks Congratulations. i'm excited i'm excited to do it we've been we've been trying not not trying for a while and so um we were really excited, but we were kind of getting to that point where we were like, um, maybe it's time to not try anymore. Cause, <laughs> you know, but, but we're, we're super excited. So little girl, little girl. We, so we already, we have one daughter, 18 year old daughter who's in college. And then we have three boys, uh, 15, nine and seven. And then now we have a new little girl on the other end. So bookends 
our our girls and then the boys in between and the boys in the middle wow that's awesome how that turned out man like a, like i said congratulations you you definitely you. got a, a workforce down there on that ranch <laughs> It takes it takes one. I, I'm gonna put each and every one of them to work. Trust me, <laughs> man. Before I get into a couple of things with you, especially the fly fishing, because fly fishing is something that I've never done and I haven't really talked to anyone about. So I, I want to get into that. But before, I kind of want to read something that. Um, basically is what brought us together, What at least what brought me to your page. It was during the uh, Blackout Tuesday. And for those who aren't familiar, Blackout Tuesday was a, uh, was a day uh, shortly after everything that happened with George Floyd and all the uh, unrest that was going on, uh, still going on in the country. You know, everyone basically banded together to show a solidarity put just like a little black square in their profile i did it a few other brands did it a lot of major brands uh in the outdoor industry did it and i don't think i'm speaking out of turn when i say that to see some of the major brands uh do it was a little bit of a shocker it was just kind of like oh okay because you know we really didn't expect it or at least i didn't and a few people that i talked to didn't that being said you took the time to leave a message. And like I said, I want to share uh, with the listeners that message. And it goes, hopefully I don't uh, butcher this too bad. I wanted to take a moment to let you know that your Black Square post and all the others moved me and is among the most meaningful moments in my life. As a minority business owner in the hunting and fishing space, I have always felt welcome. But I've always felt that I wanted to see more people that look like myself in this world. As a young man, I fought my own prejudice against the hunting community. And it wasn't until I was an adult and taught myself how to hunt and join the community that those prejudices went away. I was wrong to have those prejudices. They were all based on judgments made because I saw so few people of color in the sport. Those judgments have been gone for some time. Yesterday, as my feed filled with black squares, as I watch the big brands in the hunting and angling community lean into the movement, the call for justice, the call for equality, it registered to me as a sign of acceptance. I felt a true belonging to this hunting and fishing community. I was moved to tears by several of the posts. I didn't even realize that it, that I personally needed that community embrace and signal of acceptance, but I did. So thank you for being a part of it. You made a difference at the communal level. I look forward to seeing you out there. And I responded very simply, you never know the influence you have on folks. We are glad to be a positive one. Josh, what made you leave that comment i mean first of all thank you because i think a lot of times and i'm just going to speak for myself we're moving at the speed of light we're doing so many things and not all the time do we recognize you know the influence uh good or bad but in this case good that we have on folks so first off i want to say thank you thank you for thanking me and <laughs> and you're welcome because so you know, that that response was – it's tough to, to know where to tackle this, but I'm just going to walk through how I got to that making that post. And a couple of days before Blackout Tuesday, Orvis had put out a post. And an Orvis post was, was the first time that I had seen a company in my outdoor space – Right, a truly what seemed heartfelt. Like you could tell that it was a voice, it was posted on a brand, but I could read it and see that somebody made a call that that they were going to take a stand and use the, the, the channel of the brand to take a stand for, to just do what is, what's right. And, which and is, Or, Orvis is a, is a fishing, big fishing brand in, in the fishing community, correct? They are. They're a big, they're a big brand in the, in the fly fishing and in the wing shooting, the upland hunting community. And, you know, their customer 
is 50 years old, wealthy, male and white, you know? So, so to see a, 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 a brand that I know their core customer is not me, but take a, take a stand that, that could be incongruent to some of their core customers. And, and they encourage, not only in their statement, they encourage everyone in the space while acknowledging that they, that they were not, that they, they themselves made mistakes, right? So this is the first brand to say anything that I saw in, our, in, in the hunting and fishing world. And it, it hit me pretty big. I was, I was proud of all the Orvis things that I've used because Orvis has been important to me my entire hunting and fishing career. They were, the first fly rod I ever had when I was 12 years old was an Orvis fly rod. And I was just moved. But I, I wasn't moved into full action yet at that moment in time. So I had two days to just digest on on how happy I was to see a brand that was important to me that I felt was backing me up, standing standing with me as a person of color. And then two days later, the the black squares started appearing, and lots of other voices, personal people, people, individuals. And, and to me, what was moving was, was companies because companies, they usually don't weigh in on things. They try to, you know, I, I don't see companies, a lot of companies, particularly in the hunting fishing world, calling for social justice or jumping on social justice um, causes. You see them for conservation. They spend a lot of time talking about conservation of lands, but not, not social justice. Right. Um, and so I, uh, I, I remember waking up in the morning. So starting with the Orvis post, I remember I was the first comment on the Orvis post and I spent about the next 24 hours just engaging when people said things like, Oh, Orvis, you should just stick to making fly rods. You can go back and read through the comments. I was hitting them with, with a rebuttal on behalf of Orvis standing up for them saying, no, wait a minute. They don't have to just make fly rods. This is this is this is this is a human rights thing. We all should we all have a vested interest in it. So then the black squares came out, and um, I'd had two days to kind of digest, and I started to confront some feelings inside myself because seeing um, seeing the first company come out kind of gave me some bravery to face some some issues that I had, which we get into later. But when the black squares came out. And I saw more and more people. I, I, I was so overwhelmed that I that I started crying. <laughs> I did. I mean, it it impacted me very heavily, um, and I I didn't even know why I was crying at, at points in time. I was just emotionally very very touched, and I partway through the day decided as I started to get my my head around what was going on inside of me and, and what was going on inside of me. Um, and I don't want to run too long here, but I, I grew up, uh, I, I am biracial. Um, my mom is white. My dad is black. I did not know my dad. I grew up in my mom's world and I grew up not, not being taught about racial prejudice. And I think my mom my mom doesn't have any racial prejudice and I feel like she felt like she was shielding me from that world by mm. not having a conversation with me about it. Right. You know, kind of like sheltering. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I know that that she was doing the best, you know, what she felt was the best thing to do. Um, the, the byproduct of that was that, that I grew up in a pretty white world and, I would have friends that, that I became good friends with. And then all of a sudden they would just make some comment that was just blatantly racist, <laughs> you know? And, and I would look at them and go, well, you know, just give them the look or I might say something. And, and or they would look at me and realize what they said and say, well, Oh no, Josh, you don't, you don't count, you know? And, and uh, I think, you know, I would just avoid those people then. We weren't going to be friends after that, right? Like, I'd just go the other way. But I wouldn't say anything. I didn't confront people. I I just stuffed it down. You know, I just bottled it. I bottled the way I felt about it my whole life. And as I got into college, 
found that I that I that I started to associate and get more in touch with with my my black side, and um, I felt that you know there were also some statements that were made that because my mom is white that kind of that like hit me the same way, right? right? And I just bottled this. I just stuffed it, stuffed it, and it wasn't until that Tuesday that I'm 45 years old that man I confronted shame and guilt of years of not saying anything to people or just excusing people for like, Oh, that's just an old person with dated views or, Oh, they don't mean that. Or, Oh man, I, it, it hit me like, it, and it was all of the people, the solidarity of people and the, and honestly the brand voices that made, gave me the bravery to open and look inside of myself and go, Oh man, and it was shame, tears of shame, tears of guilt, tears of happiness, tears of anger. Just years came flying out of me all at once. And um, that's that's what moved me to, to, to write that comment. And I went through and found as many people that I could find that were attached to my, you know, I'm in the hunting and fishing world. So I want to I want to use my voice in that world. I, I, I don't want to broaden too far. I want to take my work into the space that I live in. Right. If the opportunity comes for a broader conversation to the broader world, great. I'm going to start with with my world, right? Makes them right. Makes the the to be able to to be a voice and and you know work like you said in the space you know that you're in. Right. Yep. So what I did is I went through all the brands and all the people that were in my world and I started going to their feeds. And if it was a public feed and I saw that they posted support, I would thank them and I'll post a thank you. Um, I got blocked by times. I got blocked by Instagram a couple of times and they immediately released the block. Um, and I just I just thanked as many people as possible because because it truly is a thank you. And I want to say thank you now to all those people who, who supported that movement because you guys pushed me to a space where I feel safe, empowered to be able to speak up against racism and to confront, confront. I'm it, it's no more now. I mean, somebody says something, I'm not gonna shrug it off and let it be okay. I'm not gonna, you know, let them feel like it's okay to make a statement that I find offensive in front of me. I'm going to say, Hey, that's offensive. And I, I don't appreciate it. Um, or ask them, why would you say something like that and open the dialogue? But, but, but no more. Cause I'm not going to carry around the shame and guilt that I was carrying around by not saying anything. So, so I, I rambled there, but no, it, 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 it's just very interesting. Like I said, to listen, um, because I, I don't know, you know, what it's like to grow up biracial, um, you know, have biracial parents. You know, I, I have a few friends that um, that are, and, you know, I try to listen to their experiences and they talk about it a little bit. But, you know, the bigger overall thing, you know, for me, it's just like I said, you know, when I started this podcast, it's just, you know, to get in and to tell stories, uh, and to shine the light, you know, on folks and in spaces that, you know, often, often. Uh, looked over. And so to to be able, like I said, to to actually know that you had to have a positive effect on someone and and in their life, man, that's just, you know, it, it's it's part of what we're here for. And, uh, and I'm glad that I was able to uh, to be that positive, uh, be that positive effect. <laughs> Yeah, and, and and thank you for that because it, it's uh, my my life is the trajectory of my life has has changed and my my view. I, had, I we we were always pushing diversity in the outdoors at Spokalo Ranch, and that's that's you know as an outfitter, we did that just because that's that's the way we saw the world. Right? It was 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 with diversity the way I saw the world. I think and and so uh, when you look at at our media and things, you will see women, you will see people of color, you will see diversity. Um, but now, you know, now I have a true deeper meaning and understanding of why 
I'm doing that. Not that it's just something that I do, but now I have a, I really had to reflect after blackout Tuesday and, and kind of made me reflect on my journey towards hunting. And I, I got to hunting as an adult in my thirties. And, um, I taught myself how to fish when I was 12, but in my thirties, I, I taught myself how to hunt and I look back at what that journey was like. And it's interesting. So to speak to as a, as a person of color in the outdoor space. And one of the things that I confronted is why did it take me so long to come to hunting and what are the hurdles that I had to overcome? And I will tell you, I, I was talking with someone just the other day and I said, you know, one of the baseline things for me, and I don't know if this is for everybody, but this is for me personally. I, I remember watching, you know, civil rights um, films, you know, when I was young, mm -hmm. real young, you know, eight years old, you know, and, and I remember seeing sort of some of the atrocities, uh, you know, the terrible things that happened between police and protesters and, and brutality and just stuff that was going on at that point in time. And, and I, in my mind, I guess had associated hunting guns and guns in general with uh, angry white men, <laughs> you know, like a gun was something that, I mean, it was, you know, I mean, that's what my view of it was. It was like, man, it's like, so that's something that guys who don't, you know, like me or like people who look like me own. And I've, I've kind of had to dig at that a little bit more. If you look back in our history, there's a point in time where as a black person, as a person of color, you, you, you were not allowed to own a gun. You know, you, so I think there is something there that puts up a barrier for us to get into hunting or for me, it was for me to get into hunting where I had built this in my mind and it was so far deep seated back there that I didn't even know that it was controlling me because you look at a, at a shop, a gun shop and it's changing now, but it used to be, you went into them, everybody was older white men. And if you're an adult you don't know anything about guns. It's just a very intimidating place. Right. So I, you know, I had a good friend who helped me push past that barrier and I'm glad I did because I truly enjoy hunting. It brings a lot of, uh, satisfaction to me in my life and it connects me to the outdoors. And I want to be here to help as many people who are like me, whatever, what is holding them back, whether it's, whether it's, they don't see people who look like them or they didn't learn from someone of all genders and colors to get into the outdoors that's it's very important to me personally well and it, it, it's funny that you that you mentioned that because you know i came to hunting late myself you know as an adult basically taught myself how to shoot a bow taught myself or currently you know teaching and learning myself how to deer hunt um you know i've been doing it for about four or five seasons now so i'm always learning but I enjoy it, but it, it's funny about the intimidation factor and just all of the different things that you hear when you first start out. It's like, oh, well, why are you doing, you know, that's white people stuff. That's what white people do. And, and people have always said that about me anyway, because I drive a lifted truck and I like to ride ATVs, but it, <laughs> it, it, it just speaks to, you know, kind of like the narrow view that some people have. I mean, because even in doing this, you know, I always tell folks, they're like, well, you know, they're like, wow, black people hunt. It's like black people, you know, like we know we fish, but it's like, you know, it's, it's almost like a light bulb or, or disbelief when you say, you know, that you like to hunt and hunt deer and turkey and hogs and stuff like that. When the fact of the matter is, that's what our ancestors did to survive. That's what a lot of people today still do to survive. I'm fortunate that I do it as a hobby and it's something that I like to do more of a sport as a sportsman and a leisurely um, thing. It's not like pure necessity. Like I don't have to go and kill deer out of pure necessity. Like I enjoy the sport. I enjoy deer meat, but you know, there are people that are doing this. Like I like to say for real, like they're doing it because it's how they survive. It's how they live. It's how they make ends meet living off the land, farming, 
you know, hunting deer, small game, all of that stuff. So, you know, just to have that narrow mind or that narrow minded point of view, sometimes to me, it's just kind of like, okay, well, you, you kind of need to branch out a little bit. Yeah, but you know, for sure. And that's, and that, and you bring up a good point that it's, that it's a narrow minded view that's perpetuated by not just white America, but also by part of black America and by part, I mean, it, it, it's a, it's a view that we, that we all tend to perpetuate that, oh, that's just, that's just white people stuff or, or, you know, the idea of hunting, hunting is in the roots of all of us as humanity, right? I mean, and I will tell you, and, and I'd love to hear your take on coming to hunting later in life, but I came to hunting through the sustainable farming movement. I would, I was looking at trying to be self-sustaining and I, I took a class on how to butcher a hog because, <laughs> because I figured, man, I better learn how to take one of these. I figured, you know, I, I, I had shot some guns and done some stuff and I, and I figured putting a hole in one of them was going to be pretty easy. Uh, but then it's like, what do you do right. after that? How do you prepare the meat? How do you take care of the meat? So I took a butchering class and you I went take to, it a... to the processor. That's how you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so I was on the self-sustaining route. No, so I, I class and I went out and, um, you know, as everybody kind of likes to say, I harvested, I harvested a hog. And, um, and, and, um, so we started to take that hog apart or I did to gut it and field dress it and, and then take it over to butcher. And man, it was gross. There was blood everywhere. There was guts. It was, it was gross. It was gross. I'm not going to lie. I thought, man, this is pretty gross. And then the guts and stuff, we got rid of those. And, and then I started butchering the meat. And I'll tell you that I can, when, when I talk about this, I can feel, you have those memories where you can feel what the air was like at the moment in time when you were doing it. I, I feel it. Every time I talk about it, it takes me there. When, when my mind shifted from this being gross to, no, I'm processing food. And it was, this isn't a dead animal. This is food. And I really started to enjoy the work of processing my own food. And then I went to the grocery store a couple of weeks later, and I was standing there with all of the meat products that were packaged in, in plastic and the bones and everything were removed from them to make them not look like the animal that they were anymore. Hmm. And I reflected back to that shift when I went from this was a dead animal that I had just killed to this is food. And I realized how important it is to acknowledge that. And it's one of the reasons we do what we do is because I, I'm not under any false ideas that everybody can harvest their meat to survive. Like you were talking about, a lot of people do. We as a planet can't do that. We have to have the industrial farm complex in order to feed the world. But, and, and, and you notice that I talked about harvesting earlier. I know that that's a popular word. I like to use, we killed an animal or we're going to kill an animal yes. because I, I think it's important to acknowledge that something died me to live and everybody if everybody at least at one point in time in their life killed something and ate it then i think what will happen is we as society will demand that the industrial farm complex treats animals and our meat in a humane and and safe way so that the food products that we get are, are more healthy so that's that's why I love introducing people to hunting because I think it changes their perspective on the food supply chain. So no, it, it, it does. And it's funny because you were, you were saying, you know, like what basically bought you, you know, was the, you know, sustainability and, you know, being able to farm and sustain and, you know, have your own meat and things like that. <laughs> I wish it was that deep for me when I started. It it really was as simple as I was getting older. Uh, the video game thing was kind of wearing out for me. And yeah. golf is not anything that I'm 
over, I'm interested in at all. And I, I grew up on a dirt road in South Carolina, so I've always lived in the country. And, you know, you see different things. You see, you know, cows, hogs, and stuff get butchered. Didn't really uh, have a lot of hunting influence in my life growing up. But, you know, you see deer, you see turkeys. God knows you see your share of, you know, snakes, water moccasins, cotton mouse, and, and the such. But I always wanted an ATV. So when I started working and, and you know, making my own money and had a little bit of disposable income, I bought an ATV. And like that first year and a half or so, like I rode that thing all over up and down Georgia and different states, Texas, Alabama, like Tennessee, just all over, like wherever I could find a place to ride my ATV, that's where I was at. And the more times I spent in the woods, the more I just started enjoying it and seeing the different animals and stuff. And I knew I wasn't big into gun hunting at, at first. Like, I really wasn't big into guns, but I thought it was like, wow, it would be really cool to shoot a bow. And mm. so I took a cut. Now, you find it taking class. And, and I just want to stop. Like, the people that came before us, like our, like our ancestors, grandfathers, uh, uncles, whoever, like, that's that older generation that – you know, was doing this and basically taught and passed it down and all that other stuff. I'm pretty sure they are all, they would be laughing hysterically when they hear two guys in 2020 talking about how they took a class to learn how to do something. (laughs) 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 You you took a class. (laughs) If that does not qualify as what most country folks call quote unquote hippie-ish, but either way, (laughs) my thing is, no matter how you get to it, as long as you get to it and you love it, that's all that matters. So I took a class literally for like a half an hour, uh, an archery class. I just wanted to make sure that I had a rough idea of what was going on. And it was a traditional archery class. And the guy bitched and moaned for about 20 of the 30 minutes about how nobody wants to learn traditional archery and everybody just wants to pick up a bow, a compound bow, and go shoot it and go kill something. And at the end of 30 minutes, I raised my hand and I was like, yep, that's me. Thank you. And I walked out the door, went up the road to the Bass Pro Shop and bought me a compound bow. And I've been hooked ever since. I love bow hunting. I've talked about bow hunting numerous times on this show. And just the thing that I love about it is being able to get an animal close and being close up on animals. And then fast forward to where I'm at now, what you were talking about as far as that sustainability you know, being able to kill a deer, being able to kill a hog. I'm not to the point where I can dress and butcher a deer or a hog yet, but I have, you know, I do butcher my own, my birds. So I love goose hunting, duck hunting, especially goose hunting. And, you know, I, I did my first duck this past year, like over Christmas, we had like about three or four whole ducks um, that I butchered. Um, I, I butchered, like I say, geese all the time. Breast them out because I just don't have the patience to do an entire goose. Um, <laughs> but I keep saying that it's something that I want to do. But I I will breast them out and come up with all different kind of recipes and stuff. Same thing with uh, with turkeys. But the deer and the hogs, that, that's going to be like the final frontier. Um, once I get a space where I can do it at, one, and then two, Uh, just to take the time to learn because I was butchering before I came back down here to Georgia full time. I was living in Illinois or living in Wisconsin and I would literally have to roll out uh, trash bags and newspaper to butcher geese in my apartment to try to keep the feathers from going all over the place. So. <laughs> I mean, oh, I, I was, I was determined to learn, you know, how to do it and stuff. Cause I come back from Illinois with a cooler full of these big old geese and I'm like, okay, well I, I got to do something here. So instead of taking them to the park and have somebody drive by with a knife and see me butchering geese that they think that I caught out of the park or something, <laughs> I just did it in my apartment. <laughs> but Man, <laughs> so. I, can't even, I can't even imagine. I, I, I wish that you would have video, videoed that because I'd like to see how that went down. I, I didn't do full part. videos, but I did take like some pictures. I'm sure there are pictures on my Instagram with my spread, like 
laid out, took like three or four trash bags, cut them open, lay them across um, the thing. And find those. I'm yeah. <laughs> it was, it was truly remarkable, but yes, the, and the more that I, I've hunted and the more that I've gotten into it, there is a satisfaction of killing your own meat, knowing where it came from and outside of the, uh, the taking it to the butcher, um, part of it for the most part, knowing, you know, where that meat came from and knowing that you had a hand in getting it there. Yeah, it's, it's satisfying. And I'll tell you first, let me say that, you know, if you want to come out this next season and, and, and the COVID world permits come out and I'll show you how to, to, to butcher a whitetail all the way to sausage and we'll, we'll make the sausage out of it and jerky and um, steaks and do all the stuff. So you're, you're certainly invited to come to Texas and do that. That sounds like a, a offer that I, I need to take you, uh, <laughs> I need to take you up on because deer, deer hunting Texas is definitely on my, uh, on my to-do list. I was supposed to turkey hunt Texas. We were talking about earlier. I was supposed to turkey hunt Texas. Um, and then the damn COVID kind of had another idea um, basically said, eh, eh. so it, it got in the way of a bunch of turkey hunts this year that, that I had planned, but exactly. So, but no, I, I'm, I'm going to hold you to that. Cause like I said, shoot, uh, bow hunting a deer in Texas is, is on my list. And if I can bow hunt a deer and then have a hand in skinning and quartering and, and getting that thing packed down, then I'm all about it. Well, you can you can help educate me a, a little bit deeper on bow hunting because I'm I am newer to bow hunting. You know, my my world is I, I live in the upland dog hunting uh, bird hunting world a lot. You know, I love working with dogs. I love chasing birds behind gun dogs. It's it's exhilarating. I've heard and, that. I, I've heard that. I've not, I've not done much of like the pheasant dove kind of thing i i do enjoy watching the dogs work um the few times that i've been duck hunting most of the time when we go goose hunting we're out there in the field on our own so we'll just go retrieve you know our own geese but i i have heard from guys that work dogs whether it be with birds or with like rabbits or whatever it is truly an exhilarating and rewarding experience well when you get a when you get a pointer flusher combo and a lot of it is there's a lot of work that goes into getting these dogs ready. So a lot of it is much like I would say fly fishing is the same thing. They're process oriented things. It's not about the event itself. It's about the lead up. It's all the little things that you have to do to get ready for the event. As you know, from bow hunting, you had to get very proficient at a bow before going out and feeling like you could take a shot at a larger animal. Right. Um, with, with bird hunting, I'll kind of talk about both at the same time. Bird hunting and fly fishing. Fly fishing, you you got to learn to cast. You got to learn fly selection. You got to learn all these all these little techniques. And then if you want to take it off the deep end of the pool, you learn to tie your own flies. And then with bird hunting, if you have your own dogs, it's it's working with those dogs. It's building the rapport with those dogs. It's getting those dogs to where they understand what what is to be what you're asking them to do in the field and watching those magic moments where things light up with your dog, like your dog's first point where it successfully points and holds all the way through. Cause you're trying to teach this dog you're working with, with vestigial remaining pieces in these dogs brain. That was how they used to live, which was they had to stalk birds. So they had to find the bird and they had to stalk it like a cat far enough away where they didn't scare these ground nesting birds off the ground. And so that's what these dogs are doing is they're, they're using this, this deep, deep ingrained behavior to point at a bird. And when, when you see a dog point at a bird, and then if you add the flusher combo, which is a big thing down in Texas nowadays, which is another dog who's on heel and back with you. Mm -hmm. When you release that other dog and the, the dog that's pointing allows that dog, honors them, allows them to go in front of them on the bird that they found and push that bird up into the air. And then you connect with a shot. It's pretty special. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty special because you are working with these two animals that, that, it's, it's cool, man. You're, you're, you're going to experience it when you're down here. And 
what I like about that is just like with deer hunting, it seems like the old narrative was, um, let's take a picture of a pile of birds. Let's take a picture of a dead deer and me standing over the top of it. Let's take a picture of a string or a fish. When the string or a fish, the pile of birds and the dead deer are the smallest piece of the story. The story is everything you do leading up to that moment of taking the shot or catching the fish or shooting the bird. And then the rest of the story is everything you do with that meat after that moment. And so you'll notice, you know, people are paying attention to the message we're putting out. I don't always put out a lot of um, dead animal or big fish shots or those sort of things. I put them out when it's spectacular or something's cool. I, I do it in the right place. Mm-hmm. But really, I like to show the moments in the field that people don't show. Putting a collar on a dog, giving a dog a drink of water, a couple of friends talking as they walk out to the deer blind, you know. I don't know. Those are the moments I think that make hunting and fishing special. It's definitely a different point of view because it's almost kind of like how we come at, how we look at stuff in the sports television world where it's like if you, you see the same shots over and over again, then they're less special. So it's kind of like that approach. Like if you, you know, if you're focusing your content or you're focusing on the things, like you said, a message that you want to drive home and the nuance and the little things that go into it, when you do have that, you know, that big deer or that big fish, or like you said, a pile of birds or whatever, when you finally show it, it means more because you're just not plastering dead deer, or dead fish or dead birds all over your, all over your, uh, your, you know, your platform. So I definitely understand where you're coming from there. It's, it's, and like I said, it's just as similar as to what we look at, where it's just like, you want to make that, you want to make that shot. You want to make that, that picture impactful mm-hmm. yeah for sure because it is impactful for the person and the only way to do that is like you said i never really thought of that perspective but really when we show all the little moments that have nothing to do with it once you do show that 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 big fish or you know that successful um kill of a deer or harvest of a deer however it is that you prefer to say it um you it, it's had it carries more meaning it really does I, I i never thought about that before but that is that that is a very valid point. Now, how did you get to basically owning, working, sustaining a ranch? Like I, I read a little bit that you came from like the culinary world and just, you know, being able to harvest your own, you know, big game and stuff kind of was like a light bulb moment for you. Kind of like turn, you know, turned uh, some things on for you but how did you get into like to the ranch and into the outfitting part so yes yeah, good question so uh like most things in life by accident but <laughs> <laughs> but uh you know so my wife um her family has owned a ranch here in Wimberley, texas her grandfather bought this ranch in the 40s and um she has three siblings and and, and her mother is, is the second generation. They're the third generation. Our kids are the fourth. Wow. Well, yeah, so her, her, her grandfather um, had a vision for this property. And it was, this was a retirement property for him back when it was, you know, easy to, to find a thousand acres or easier to find a thousand acres. <laughs> in the hill. You know, we're, we're getting a lot of suburban creep, you know, encroachment upon here. A lot of ranchettes, a lot of five, 10 acre ranchettes, a lot of large, large tracts of land have been broken apart. Right. And so we went through a process of conversation with the family. So the family, my wife's family took about a generation and a half off from involvement with the property. Um, we had a cattle lease on it and we had some hunters on it and the taxes were paid. And every once in a while there was a big project that went on and the, and the ranch could sit here and nobody had to really think about it a lot. Well, my wife and I started coming out here with our kids. Um, you know, shortly after we were, we were married. Um, I have, I have two kids from a previous relationship. And so we brought those kids out here and I grew up in Colorado. So, 
vitamin um, nature was really important to me. And being in Texas, I had kind of gotten disconnected from that. Mm. So we started coming out to the ranch and I started to get reconnected with, with nature again. And the place just became special to us. We started spending more and more time here and um, fast forward many years. We really wanted to undertake some larger conservation projects on the property, mitigating some cedar and repairing some riparian areas and trying to restore some spring systems. And so our outfitter concept was born out of a lot of conversations with the family. And anytime you shift from having strangers operate um, a piece of land to a family member is a big, big discussion, right? Because it's yeah. it's easy to fire strangers, right. you know, right. much harder to fire family members. And so we had a couple of years of conversations. And uh, finally, the, the family came to the conclusion that, okay, we will assign the hunting and grazing rights to the property and allow you guys to, to manage it and take it in this direction. And our objective with the outfitter is to build an outfitter that can sustain the conservation of the property and hopefully make it to where a couple generations down the road don't have to write checks for maintenance of the property mm. because that's when big properties we've seen in Texas tend to get broken up. And when they get broken up, it's usually to land developers and they build a bunch of houses on them. Yeah. And um, we would like to try to conserve this piece of property um, in, in the state that it's in. And by removing the outfitter, by having the outfitter pay for the conservation of the property, that removes one more reason for it to be sold. So, so we now live at the ranch. So now there is a, the third and fourth generation of the ranch are now living on the property. And man, that's a beautiful thing. It's really, it's really cool. And you know, our, our, our kids get to, wake up and we've got riverfront access here they get to run down they can swim in the river they can run around and dodge rattlesnakes (laughs) (laughs) and i don't know if that's fun i don't think that would be my idea of fun (laughs) but it's just it's really nice to have this connectivity and being from colorado i appreciate and love public lands and i love and we spend time in idaho on public lands and i love being able to be on a public land, but I also love being able to be on our piece of property because I've become, I can walk past a rock and go, huh, that rock wasn't there in that way yesterday. Right. <laughs> and then, and it's a different level of ownership. Whereas I feel like I'm a owner, I do own public land and it's amazing, but I'm also not responsible for large conservation projects on public land. Other than the fact that how I vote right. and how, influence on this piece of property i can say let's remove some trees here and let some grasses come in and i grab my chainsaw go out there and do it and that's fun it really is it's impact feels impactful good dude i'm all about land ownership um i own some land here in georgia that i'm looking to build on and you know, like one of the things that I'm going to set up is just that there's, it has to stay in the family, like where it is right now. It's on a dirt road They're on the dirt road. There are no houses on that road yet. That is the to me, that is the absolute best thing about that <laughs> piece of property. Um, now, when you go to the end of the road and you make a left or a right, there are some houses um, there. There's a lot of uh, like logging and hunt club um land and stuff but i mean like literally i am like two miles out of the smallest town and (laughs) the nearest walmart is about 25 to 30 minutes away um i love it i can't wait to get out there full time and it's just like you said you know i'll get out there on my atv and i'll ride past the same landmark you know 20 times and that 21st time i'm looking like wait a minute that wasn't there or that moved or what happened. Like, you know, is the, it's something that, you know, I always tell people they're not going to make any more of it. So, Mm -hmm. you know, if you are fortunate enough to be in a situation where you can own land, man, I'll tell anybody, I know people love beating the public land drum and public land owner and all that other stuff. And I get it and I understand it. And I don't, 
you know, mm-hmm. besmirch anybody, you know, for it. But if you have the opportunity to own your own land, man, I don't care if it's an acre, two acres, three acres. It, it's it's something that they're not going to make any more of. I mean, I my my dream is to own land in Texas. Um, at, um, at some point, and I I've seen some opportunities. Um, I I'm a little I'm still a little squirrely about it. Um, because the good land, as you know, is expensive. The cheap land is out by El Paso. And I just keep thinking to myself, like, this could be the investment opportunity of a lifetime because eventually they're going to have to build a Walmart out there. But (laughs) (laughs) until then, just get it, hold on to it, try to hunt it as much as you can, and then wait for them to run an interstate or a Walmart through there and cash in. (laughs) (laughs) I'll tell you. The thing about West Texas, I wouldn't hold your breath on a Walmart or an interstate. But the one thing is, is it's beautiful out there. So we we have an extension of our property um, that's in West Texas, 20, 20 minutes south of Marathon, Texas, 20 minutes north of a Big Ben. Okay, um, yeah, yep. And uh, it's a 9,000-acre ranch. And we we have a couple projects like this. But this one, so our, 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 our ranch near Austin, San Antonio. We're an hour drive from 4.2 million people. This is a preserve style bird hunt. This is a place to come to learn or get your quick fix, or I can't make it out to hunt. So man, I'm going to just jump out there and I'm going to hunt or I've got a new dog and I want to work with a dog, but whatever it is, this is, this is um, close to the city and easy to get to, to get a nature fix. Now, after you've come out here and you have shot a preserve style hunt, which we, we don't, we don't pretend like this is the great safari of the world. This is, <laughs> right. You you know you know what talk- you are you and people know what what they what they're coming there for and, and I applaud you for that. I get many tangent. I get so sick and tired of people making a big deal about you know oh well that's a pinned hunt or that's a canned hunt or those are flight birds this that and the other it's like if you have a chance to get out there and enjoy it go fucking enjoy it nobody is trying to pretend like it's you know the like you said the great safari or whatever like Mm -hmm. so for some people it's the only opportunity that they got and they should be able to go for it and enjoy it or learn here's the thing is is i use bird hunting as an example you know i can put somebody in a three-hour period on 20 to 30 contact bird contact points with a dog okay now a dog hunting wild birds getting 20 30 contact points man you got to work like it, it is that ain't going to happen in 30 minutes thir- three hours right that's the you know maybe a week you know depending on how it is and how good you you are at finding the birds or going to the right spots or where the birds are here it's guaranteed the shooter is going to get a compressed number of contacts and if they brought their own dog out here their own dog is going to get a compressed number of contacts so once you've come out here and you've done that and you're feeling like man i got this down four or five times you've learned to learn to wing shoot then you can go join us in West Texas. So we'd like to offer the the counterpoint, right? We don't have to pretend like this is the wild hunt because we have the wild hunt and we'll take you there. Right. And then you'll go, Oh man, I just walked 14 miles today and we got contacts, but not as many as I got in three, three hours. (laughs) My feet hurt. Those birds flew really fast. (laughs) I was missing them. But man, I had an amazing time and this is gorgeous. Right. And the light bulb goes off that this is what it's all about. But because you came to Spoke Hollow to our closer ranch to the city and you learned, you got a better chance of, of enjoying and appreciating that wild hunt. And on the other side of that, briefly, deer hunting, we'll put somebody in a box blind here and we'll shoot a, a deer at 100 yards and it will be off a feeder. We can do that so that we can put a deer on the ground if you've never butchered a deer, and we will then teach you how to butcher a deer. From there, we have we have guides who will take you in the direction of bow hunting, or we have guides that will take you in the direction of 250, 450-yard long shooting. And then on the deep end of the scale, more in your end of the world, we a friend of mine 
Phil, Phil Liebel, he is a primitive outdoor specialist and he will take you and on an eight month, nine month journey of building your own bow, building your own arrows, napping your own points out of flint and learning to stalk a deer. And he will show you or give you the opportunity to kill a, 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 a whitetail or a hog potentially with a primitive stone point. Mm. And then he'll push it a step further and show you how to brain tan the hide. And then a step further and he'll show you how to take all the bones and build knife handles and fish hooks. And it's pretty amazing. And that wow. that's, I actually just kind of announced something that, that is coming. I got excited and wanted to talk about it with you, <laughs> but, but that's, that is actually not even being released till 2021. And I don't even know if I was supposed to talk about it, but there it is. So in the context of we are not trying to pretend like the canned hunt is a real hunt it, or nor is it a canned hunt. It's just a hunt right. and it's an educational experience. And we'll take you wherever you want to the wild places or to here where we can just teach you to get to the wild places. And it frustrates me as well when people judge the canned hunt scenario. Yeah. It, it, again, the, to, to bring it, full circle it's just the the narrow minded you know view of you know the one thing i will say about about hunters and being a part of this community sometimes we are our own worst enemies um because you know we we judge we pick apart we infight you know some guys and gals think their way is the only way and if you don't do it my way then screw you and you don't know what you're talking about and i it, it's a lot of like petulant child infighting and we we do ourselves a disservice in the community when we aren't willing to learn or we're not willing to you know accept nobody's saying that you have to do it that way but you know it's kind of like if it's not your thing then you can just be quiet about it and move on like it's not yeah hurting the sport or anything like that and, and if if you know what you know a person hunts a certain way or fishes a certain way or whatever you know as long as it's legal and it's ethical then Keep your mouth shut and go on about your business, but I digress. You know, it's interesting because you know, and and uh, this is kind of the last point I would make on this on this this strand, but it's a one that's important because I think it's one that I don't hear a lot of people saying. We had a recent ruckus down in Texas with the BHA down here, who posted a, a, a campaign that was "Eat Real Deer," and it was an anti-deer. Um, Farmed deer campaign, and the B real quick. The BHA is the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers okay. um, Association, and um, they're they push a lot of pro. They're very pro public land. They they do a lot of good stuff, but in this context, they're in Texas where we have high fences, and um, the genetic deer game is a big piece of it. I personally don't subscribe to the genetic deer game, right? But I don't judge anybody who does. Exactly. Um, now, the high fence, what happened is that conversation turned into a deep dive into high fences and the ethics of high fences. And I heard all kinds of things. And I didn't weigh in on that conversation because it got too crazy. And I just was like, no, I'm not doing this. But what I heard was people, you're trapping deer in a high fence and you're raising them and then you're shooting them. And I want to take an opportunity as a land owner and a conservationist to this is what I said to the BHA organization here. As I said, you are when somebody looks at it that way, the high fence, the problem is they are looking at a high fence through the small lens of a rifle scope. <laughs> um, so the deal is as a, as a land conservationist, the, um, the high fence in the Texas Hill Country, the high fence exists because we have about 3.6 million deer to 4.2 million people mm. in the Texas Hill Country. <laughs> There's like almost a deer for each person. Right. Okay? So 
You I, get a deer. You get a deer. <laughs> you deer. You get a deer. Everybody gets a deer. <laughs> so, like, so the deal is I could shoot every deer off of my property tomorrow. You and I could go out and, you know, if it was deer season and, we, and it was legal for us to do it, we could shoot every deer on this property. Within two years, I'd have the same amount of deer back, maybe more. Mm. They just dump in from the sides, from all of these ranchettes that are around me, these smaller acre tracks that don't hunt. It's mm. come pouring back in two, three years. I'd be back to the same number. And here's the thing is my current number uh, before a high fence, the number was more deer than my forage could sustain. The deer were doing okay, but how are the songbirds doing? How are the quail doing? How are how the turkey doing? Right. And so when you start when you broaden that your perspective from a from a rifle scope and start looking at it as a conservationist, I have a high fence not to trap deer in, to keep deer out. Right. The byproduct is my deer are bigger and healthier because the forage levels are right and I'm able to manage my small piece of property to its highest level of utilization. So I always encourage people when the high fence subject comes up that there might be a little bit more to it than, than the, than the perspective that they take on. So definitely I, I digressed heavy there. Sorry. No, it, it, it is. It's like most things there, there are, you know, it's it's more to it if you if you take the time. I mean, and and in the world that we live in, you know, the information is there if you want to take the time to Google and find it and figure it out. So, but you know, people, yeah. it, it's up. It it is up to the people. It, it it's up to the person, I should say. Um, Josh, I I really enjoyed this man. Um. Before you get out of here, I need you to tell everyone where they can find you, all your social media, all of your, you know, YouTube, whatever, email, whatever. <laughs> Let yeah. folks know how they can find Spoke Hollow Outfitters and find you. Okay. Well, so uh, the, the, the starting is you can find us on the web at www.hook, H-O-O-K, and and field field.com social media we keep it pretty streamlined for this moment in time um our outlet is spoke hollow outfitters on instagram um and if you stay tuned there you will see as we start to unroll unraveled youtube and the other social media channels but it's those two spots you can always pick up the phone and just give me a call at 512 I'm sorry at 210-441-8025 if you have any questions you can call that number and find out anything you would like to about Spoke Hollow Outfitters man that's awesome i we're going to talk offline about that uh about that deer and that deer butchering cuz we we're, we're going to have to uh <laughs> To find uh find find a mutual agreed upon time for me yeah, to come man. out there because like I said, hunting deer in Texas is something that is on my uh on my bucket list. I know, you know, everybody likes to go to Kansas and Iowa and all this other stuff, but I have maintained anybody that knows me knows that if it was not for kids or, you know, current family situation or whatever, that Texas would very well could possibly be my home i i used to love going out there when we traveled for work you know i would go to san antonio dallas uh houston on a regular basis for uh for work i've been to baylor i've been all the way out to lubbock so it's it, it's i love that place it, it's just i know a lot of people don't like it or whatever but man just you know the space and the views and stuff you know definitely um, you know, I'm a South Carolinian through and through, but definitely God bless Texas. <laughs> well, we appreciate that. And, you know, we, we'll get you out here, make you an honorary Texan, get your white-tailed deer, and, 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 and you know I'm going to stick a fly rod in your hand. And we're gonna document it and put it out there too for people to see. That's <laughs> fine. We we I gotta get you back here so we can talk about fly fishing. I, the the great thing that I love about doing this podcast is I came into this, you know, wanting to talk about fly fishing and all this, and you know all that stuff. 
and then we end up on whitetail hunting, high fence, racial injustice, and whatever else we covered in this hour. That's what I love about this podcast. We just get on here and we just start talking. There, there's no format. There's no thing that I got to follow, man. I, I just wind up guests and let them go. So I, I've enjoyed this. <laughs> yeah, well, I've enjoyed it a lot, too, and I, and I, I look forward to visiting with you throughout the years i look forward to getting you out here and you know and, and i'll be headed that way i'm actually slated to go there within the next year to to go to a bamboo uh fly rod making class at bill oyster's place which is in blue ridge um georgia up in the mountains huh the mountains yeah so so i'll be coming through your way and i'm definitely well then maybe you. yeah we'll have to we'll have to figure something out when you come through and pat when you come passing through a uh, Depending on what my schedule looks like, maybe I'll tag along to Blue Ridge and learn how to make fly reels out of bamboo. <laughs> All right. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. No, thank you for coming, Josh. And then, uh, we'll, like I said, we'll get together and uh, and get you back on and talk about some fly fishing. Cool. Looking forward to it. Bye. Brian. Luckily, the interview or uh, conversation that I had with Josh went on. Uh, without any problems, if you guys could have only seen how many takes it took me to record the open of the show today, you would get a good laugh. But nevertheless, I want to thank Josh Crumpton for stopping by and spending some time with me here on the Bryantland Show. Make sure you check out Spoke Hollow Outfitters if you are in Texas or by chance heading to Texas, make sure you give old Josh and them a holler and check them out. As for me, I'm going to get ready to get on up out of here. But before I do, I just want to remind you guys, BryantLandCountry.com is our website. BryantLandCountry.com has every single thing Bryantland. We have videos. We have merch. We have all our podcasts. You can click on the Patreon tab If you wish to support us and donate to our Patreon, we will appreciate it. But everything can be done from our website, BryantLandCountry.com. I have some exciting news that I am dying, busting at the seams to tell you guys about. But I want it to be final and I want everything to be in place before I let you guys in on what's going on. But we have some amazing, great things going on with the Bryantland show and with Bryantland in general. So hopefully on next week's show, I'll be able to break it all down and let you guys know what we got going on. As always, thank you for your support. Thank you for taking the time to come in to download and listen to our podcast. Make sure if you're listening on the Apple app, you go and you give us that five-star rating. Those five stars are everything. And make sure you continue to tell five people to tell five more people about our podcast. We really appreciate it. Thank you. I cannot stress that enough. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Make sure you come back here next week for another episode of The Bryant Land Show.